Thank you all, and I, I must say my support and enthusiasm for uh, Rothmere is um, the result solely of my acquaintance with Nigel, which I've been, I think, very fortunate in, and I know Laura shares the view. And uh, thinking about the outline of this talk, for those of you who are curious, this is a release so that whatever I say and this tape, it's not, it's not notes, and I said I would be happy to sign this afterwards. We'll see how things go. <laughs> so uh, my, the idea here is really to present you with a question that I've had and thought about quite a lot in this age. Um, just a little background. I use sort of macroeconomic theory a great deal in addressing the investment problem, but the last formal course in economics I've had, and I shouldn't say this proudly, was my um, senior year in high school, which is 1970, I'll be upfront about that. I managed to go through, I started in college, I, I was um, going to be a physics major and didn't have the discipline to go through what was required, and I went from philosophy to Russian literature to English. So you can see, and, and I told Nigel in the introduction, he, he could certainly introduce me as somebody who has a little knowledge about a lot of things. And, uh, but in trying to apply economics to the problem of positioning capital and going forward, uh, it becomes fairly evident that the way in which it's taught in at least Mo the modern times is very, very unsatisfactory in terms of its ability to forecast. And I don't want to be sort of gratuitously critical about other people because I will tell you more than anyone else, this is a very, very hard undertaking. I I've got the scars all over me, external and internal, trying to look into the future. You know, economics, modern economics is a wonderful analytic tool, but the part of it that people are concerned about and the part that creates rock stars out of economists seems to be the, the prognostic aspect, which if you look at the results from the most a highly placed graduates, and, and I'm just using the easy one is the Federal Reserve Board now, because as we heard in a private moment from one of the last, I think, really uh, qualitative thinkers to lead the Fed, which is Paul Volcker. We, we had him to a dinner. I have dinners every six weeks or so for the, we, our average age of the analytic crew is about 24 or 25. So we try to give people a perspective from people who've done things and really have been around and so they might be able to learn from the experience. And after a few glasses of wine, um, somebody asked, uh, Dr. Volcker or Mr. Volcker or Chairman Volcker about the condition of the Fed at present. And he said, well, all you have to know is they have 150 PhD economists. And he paused and took a sip and he said, and they're proud of that. <laughs> and that was the end of the comment. But you have, to, you have to know that getting a position on the staff of the Fed requires pretty, it's somewhat like becoming a, a uh, matriculated student at Oxford, you have to start with an awful lot of uh, qualification. It's a, very, it's a very tough job to get into. But then 
if you look through, and, and I won't go back ad infinitum, but you look through recent history and say we go back to the 90s where sort of modern kind of calculating power was available on a more widespread basis. And it becomes, the problem becomes more and more clear as you get closer to the present. You know, you think about some of the utterances in the late 90s, and then Alan Greenspan was talking about how the modern econometric insights had eliminated business cycles. That was part of the thinking there. Um, you know, the Federal Reserve was concerned, overly concerned about inflation after the big capital spending recession began in 2000, 2001, and really kept the yield curve inverted through two-thirds of that. Um, then on the other side, as the great housing mania began in the United States and other parts of the world, we, we just left Dublin on Tuesday um, with the remnants of unwanted houses scattered all across the countryside. But, um, the 1% emergency interest rates, which finally uh, the Fed got to in 2003, which was more than a year after the stock market and the housing market had really started to accelerate, that was kept in place for another year and a half till the summer of 2004, where for all intents and purposes, you were two-thirds of the way up the housing and mortgage finance excess that would lead to the disaster three years later. And interest rates were the first rise in interest rates that summer in, I believe it was June of uh, 2004, was from one to one and a quarter percent. And then the Fed becoming obsessed with a sort of, um, I think, overly public expression of their intentions, which is, I think, less pejoratively looked at as communication. I think it's, it's almost an obsessive confessional where they're talking about the future and can't stop. And sometimes you want to say to them, none of us know. But they announced that they would just raise rates at regular intervals at every meeting. So if you look at a chart of the federal funds rate during the middle part of the last decade, it, it looks like the face of one of the um, pyramids at Giza, where you just have this steady state step up and up. By the time they got the funds rate to a point where you actually had tightened credit conditions. You were already more than a year into the decline in house prices. You were within one year of the unwinding of the entire mortgage market. And the U.S. went into 2008, January of 2008, with the yield curve still inverted, which is I mean, that's a clear sign of the central bank wanting to dampen things. Things were already going to get so damp that everybody was on the verge of drowning. Then in the period between the failure of Bear Stearns, which at the time, I mean, we, we had pretty close relationships with a number of people there and watching closely. And the failure of Bear Stearns was really a watershed event. That was a big deal until the bigger deals that followed. From then until the failure of Lehman Brothers, which ushered in the panic and the emergency and the near end of the world as we know it, the Federal Reserve actually contracted its balance sheet. If you look at that period between the first quarter of 2008 and the disaster, it wasn't 
until the failure of Lehman Brothers and the subsequent seizure in the money markets and the threat of a pandemic run on all liquid assets that you began to get the enactment of what I would consider an appropriate emergency response. And you know, there's a lot of criticism been thrown at Ben Bernanke, but I have to say if we did not have a Federal Reserve chairman with the detailed knowledge and insight into the events of the early 1930s, uh, we would have had a depression with a capital D. You would have had runs on all the money market funds, uh, a majority of the medium-sized banks and maybe some of the money center banks. You would have had a, a real collapse in the global financial system that we'd still be we're still dealing with the aftermath of the collapse in housing and housing finance now, but you would have had a, a much, much worse situation. So on the one hand, they were two years too late in recognizing the threat of a destabilizing deflation at that point. And you know, I, I look at deflation as sort of a forced, as the aftermath of a forced liquidation of collateral. It's an involuntary liquidation of collateral that is underlying a financial infrastructure. You now in the, in the 1929 to 32 period, it was equities where all the banks were levered and that, that was the equivalent then of the housing excess. And as that occurred, what in the aftermath of that, you actually did have the degradation of money supply and a collapse in the means of purchase throughout the economy. So it wasn't that big a surprise that you went through a decade where prices fell and activity was, and that was a real depression. You know, this time around, having seen that and, and really spent uh, his life analyzing the implications of those sorts of conditions, Bernanke, to his credit, recognized what was happening at that moment. But, you know, in, if we had to grade it, we'd say, nice work, but you turned it in a semester and a half too late. So I don't know, I don't know exactly, that was sort of my MO when I was in school. Um, I don't know how that goes around here, but uh, so coming out now, we're, here, here we are five and a half or six years down the road, and now global central bankers have really become rock stars. I mean, when I got into the business 36 years ago, the number of people who could really tell you the, anything about the chairman of the Federal Reserve, much less the, well, at that point, the bank, the Bundesbank and the Bank of England. They, if you weren't a professional and you weren't kind of writing about that, the general population had no idea. You know, Senate confirmation hearings for somebody to run the Fed or to be vice chairman or a governor were, I mean, they did, I don't believe they even bothered to record them. I mean, certainly it appears in the congressional record. But the idea that this was sort of a big deal where you'd bring in a television camera. And things have changed at this point. You know, they, we're in a world that's characterized by an overabundance of information. And the difficulty people have is sorting out which among the 20,000 data points you can get daily, really, on any topic. But economics is a fun one because people are watching the markets move around which of those matter. And in every cycle, the ones that matter probably are 2% of the total. 
so, so the difficulty is, as, as I see it, what's happened is as we've gotten more computing power, as the, this relentless urge for quantitative certainty hits people, and as it's possible to, you, you can actually, you know, MIT has a project now where they monitor, they act, instead of looking at the CPI, they actually monitor a billion prices in real time. Which, by the way, if anyone's interested, the annual rate of change right now is 3.9%. So the threat of deflation, as far as the billion prices is concerned, is uh, much less than what the central banks seem to be obsessing about at this point. But given the capability, um, there's this relentless urge to feed all of these into a larger and larger and more comprehensive multivariable stochastic model and try to come out at the end with something that has prognostic value and it doesn't work. The examples of the failure are legion and it's unique among sciences in that way in this day and age and that's sort of what I thought we could think about here is you know we you look at something in Oxford obviously renowned for medical research and aspects of the hard science, sciences that deal with that. And think about how far medicine has come and the ability to now look deeper and deeper into the causal chains behind disease states and you know, the advances in genetics and microbiology. All of it's remarkable what has happened in that field. Economists are getting worse at it. And e economics still has char characteristics of a science. And in that, I mean, it has, there, there are certain laws, inviolable laws, from which the rest of the discipline derives. Um, you know, one thing I did to try to get some inspiration I, as we, uh, we were walking around, and uh, I, bought, I bought three books by um, Richard Feynman. It's always, it's a good idea before you speak to try to immerse yourself in the work of somebody a lot smarter. It sometimes can, you can get a little, a little burst up. And, and he, was, he was talking about, in one of them, just about gravity. There are you know, two, two main um, equations that give you the basis you know, about the exponential variance and the fact that you have the varied effects given inertial and gravitational mass. Um, and he said from these two equations, all of the complexity of gravitational theory, and, and it's really complex when you go up farther, can be derived. Just like, I mean, some of Euclid's observations about you know, parallel lines and things. I mean, the basis of these sciences really are quite simple, and there aren't that many, and then the, re the complexity emanates from there. I think the problem in economics is people haven't really taken the time to sit down and talk a little bit about the, the few principles, the few laws that are robust. And I think that, you know, it's, it's almost like if you were using um, the gravitational theory and the ability to reckon with the effects of, of big massive objects in the universe and you're going on a space travel or launching something th through space 
and you could you could tell pretty exactly what the you know you know where every big body is going to be in a week in a month in 10 years in astron astronomical time and you know what the effects of the gravity from that body are going to be so if you're if you've got something that's moving through space at that time you could be pretty precise about it they really i mean they can tell you exactly where you've got to aim the unmanned spacecraft to get it to land in which crater in Mars right now. And, it, and they're right, it, it gets there, it's remarkable. But economics, if you wanted to make a, a crude comparison, and I, just this is the first time I've thought of that, it, it's, it's as though as you had the spacecraft out there as you were traveling, every few days or weeks or years if you were taking a long journey, you had these random events. Planets all of a sudden could turn into supernova. And you had spontaneous arisals of black holes that completely distorted the field of gravity within you know, an enormous portion of the area of a solar system um, so that you had these overriding disturbances in the flight path that rendered all the calculations completely useless because there was no, the, the system was not robust. You knew what the reaction among planets and other planetary bodies might be, but they didn't persist. You didn't know if they'd be there. And that's really, that's the nature of economic life is the things that are worth forecasting are discontinuities. There's no precedent. You know, I, I noticed I walked past the Department of Statistics as I walked in here. I think for the most part, people derive statistics from phenomena, from precedent. The things that are important to know about in economics, the, the reason that you know, the weather won't be what it typically is this time of year, are these enormous dislocations, these discontinuous forces that build up and really cause the system to act in a way in which it's never acted. So because there's no precedent, there's no way of ascribing probability to it. These are unimaginable events. The problem is try convincing people to change their, behavior, their behaviors based on hypotheses about unimaginable events. We couldn't even get people to stop smoking. Really, I mean, I grew up and it was pretty clear it wasn't good for you. And even now, where they can, they can show you the mutations and the pace of mutation that's accomplished by the intake of um, tobacco smoke. And I smoked. Um, even now, plenty of people smoke. And in some ways, you know, you almost appreciate that. They're not making any pretense. They're not going to say, when I was growing up, people would say, oh, yeah, well, my grandmother smokes and she's 81 years old. Right, so she died at 80, 82 and she would have lived to be 108. And when she died, she couldn't move and she couldn't breathe. And she, but that was supposed to prove that the science was, was wrong. In, in some ways, it's, you know, it's, it's refreshing for people to just say, you know what? 
I understand, but I don't really care. That's not my, there's some admiration out there for uh, Vladimir Putin on that basis. He, he's not pretending anything. He's just gonna do what he wants and your ideas about right and wrong don't really concern him at all. And that's somewhat refreshing. A lot of economics, I think a lot of economic dialogue consists in people trying to convince people that they have decided that they want outcome X, but then they spend a lot of time thinking about um, what I would consider flimsy economic rationales for determining why outcome X is actually in line with the laws of economics and will be generally beneficial. It's sort of like the argument now in Switzerland where there's a ballot item now, they're proposing a minimum wage of 25 Swiss francs an hour for everyone. Now, it would be nice, it would be a nice world if that were not going to disturb the economy to the point where it really affected a great number of people's lives. It would, also, it would be a very nice world if pets didn't die. We have a 17 and a half year old dachshund and it's, it's coming. It, and fortunately the boys are now 26 and 23 so it's, I mean, it's, it's going to be disturbing but that's not the world we're in. But I read a lot, I, I read an awful lot of um, economics and what used to be called uh, matters of political economy, which was more accurate back in the day. And it strikes me that people are bending over backwards and really, you know, they're reaching between their legs to scratch their nose in order to defend positions that would be, I think, much, it would be refreshing if they would just come out and say, you know what, I understand that this is going to disadvantage a bunch of people involved in this portion of the society, but I don't really care about that. I want this advantage to accrue to our business or the people we're representing or this group or myself. And that, it's easier for me personally to reckon with. It, it's much, much more, uh, I think less harmful if people would posit the argument in that sense. So I guess the, the, uh, the real question is where, where does that leave us at present? I mean, what does the future look like? And uh, no, I think we're at a point here where the efficacy of central banks as kind of the uber regulators of the tone of the economy is about to really be questioned. Uh, I happen to believe that the asset buying program of the Federal Reserve over the past um, year and a half has been really misplaced. That they're still, they're still involved in emergency monetary policy and the emergency has passed. And now there's always a good reason for it. And as Nigel said, I tried to just to reacquaint myself with the thinking of that day. The 70s were a pretty disturbing decade in terms of the outcomes. Um, you know, not only we sort of went off gold and then you had the, the oil embargo and the responses to that in, in the central banks were not helpful. The idea was that unless you monetize the increase in oil prices, that other prices in the system would have to decline to compensate for that. And 
So to prevent that, they allowed money supply to grow and at what turned out to be a very unhealthy rate. And really what, um, what strikes you about reading the releases following the Fed's meetings is how much of an emphasis there was on a desired range of growth for M1 and M2. And that was, that was pretty much, that, that happened to be the store they were navigating by. Um, and of course, the, you know, the outcome was disastrous. We had a, it was worse, worse here. And uh, you know, it ended with Paul Volcker finally having to say, look, I'm gonna stop this inflation and I don't care what it costs because it'll destroy the society. So we wound up with 20% short-term interest rates and he, he finally turned the tide. And, um, but in each cycle, there's always, I mean, I, I don't believe any of, there, there's, there's nothing intentional about this. And I think everybody involved is decent and intellectually pretty honest and certainly with a lot of capacity to think. There's a tremendous amount of firepower. But I just think the, the very basic questions are no longer asked. You can get up to a certain level in any discipline where it's easy to jump over the basics and launch right into the complexity, which ultimately, for it to be valid, has to be derived from, you have to show the way in which the ultimate outcomes are derived from the basic theorems that constitute the laws of a science. And, it, and if you don't do that, you wind up getting untethered. And I think that's what we've gotten now. And I think in, in a world where the central banks are increasingly, I think, looked upon to manage employment levels, which I think many of the people on the Federal Reserve now have admitted, it's very hard to draw a direct line between their policy and the ultimate outcome in the, in the labor markets. But I think in their attempt to do so, they're creating a world that is the major problem of which is there's too much money. Now, so far that's only been manifest in asset prices. And the social consequences of that are becoming pretty apparent. Anybody who's dealing in a field where they have a direct linkage to asset prices is making so much money that it is verging on obscene. You, know, you look at people who are selling properties in central London who've been going about it for 30 years. Now, all of a sudden, you sell one property. It has the value. You know, of 50 such properties a generation ago. But your commission is denominated, it's, it's a nominal portion of that transaction price. And the same is certainly true of people who deal in finance. You get a portion of the bond sales, issuance of bonds in the last um, year in the United States, investment grade credit, you've had an issuance of about $1.3 trillion. Somebody gets, a, and that's, that's an enormous, enormous amount of money. And it's like that throughout any investable asset class in which the unlimited access to leverage has been manifest. And so you have this, you know, people describe it as income inequality. It's, a, it's an inevitable output of any asset price inflation. It always happens.
Um, and it's beginning without people thinking about the origins, the consequences in terms of the social structure are beginning to become, I, I think, clear and dangerous. So I, I think the next step is when the asset inflation begins to spill over to prices in the real economy. And that is also quite destabilizing, mostly for people who are in the bottom quartile in terms of standard of living and income. Uh, you know, the real, the problem with inflation is not that the price of X goes up and then the price of Y goes up and all across everything gets more expensive. The problem with inflation is that it's manifest unevenly. That's why it is really pernicious. It's not a great blanket lifting of prices. There are different elasticities, there are different transmission mechanisms throughout an economy. And that's what it does. It distorts the relative position of everything throughout an economy, which ultimately distorts the allocations of capital and at the end results in certain things being so valued so far from utility or normalcy that the return is paralyzing. And we just had one like that. And if you look back at the commentary of the Federal Reserve while the housing excess was in full force, they dismissed it as more or less a sideshow. And you seem to be seeing the same thing here. Um, the asset inflation that's really, really changed the nature of relationship both within societies and, and among societies is proceeding and the mantra is, well, we'll tolerate that, that's all right, until we get this unemployment rate or the capacity utilization of labor and productive capacity or some other metric back up to normal levels. And I think in the process, we're setting up for another very, very unusual period. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised in 12 months to see labor inflation, goods inflation, asset inflation in different sectors become a real topic of conversation. And of course, if you'll have me back here in 12 months, I'll deny having said it <laughs> if it doesn't come to pass. So I think with that, that's probably enough lecturing here. And uh, I'd be happy to uh, stay here as long as anyone wishes to ask questions, and I know that following will uh, all be treated to a little happy hour out in the atrium. Thank you.